you have a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 10 this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 22 for our scripture reading. Let us hear the word of the Lord together, shall we? At that time, at that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. And it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe me, believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, and he is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. Well, it's good to be back with you this this morning. Uh, Again, just big shout out and thanks to Ben for covering the last couple Sundays so our family could get uh, some vacation time, and I was very thankful for that. I hope that what I'm picking back up this morning will be a nice seamless transition back into the things he covered in um, chapter 9 as well as the first part of chapter 10. So last week, Ben brought our attention to the Good Shepherd. And in this passage, we find in verse 5, a stranger, they, um, I'm sorry, let me back up to verse 4. When he has brought out, out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow them, follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will, fl- they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus is having this engagement with these religious leaders, the Jews that have been around him since they got to town for the Feast of the Booze some two or three months prior to this event. And um, and, and, and again, Jesus continues to escalate what's really going on in this conflict between them and him. And uh, it, it brings us to a question that we're going to consider this morning from chapter, I mean, some verses 4, 22 through the end of the chapter. Is why do some believe and others don't? Why do some believe and others don't? Now, Let's just be honest, this is a hard question. It's a question that better people than the ones standing on this pulpit have wrestled with for, for centuries. And um, it's one that the church has wrestled with a lot in history. In fact, the answer to it gets right down to the heart of the gospel. This is what we find throughout church history, that when the, this question, in some form, whatever form it has taken, really is about what we understand the gospel to be. How do we understand the work of Christ? And so it calls us to deal with that oh-so-pesty doctrine of doctrine of election. I know you're all looking forward to this. We're all looking forward to this, right? Because yeah, none of us, love, all of us love just getting into contentious conversations, don't we? But the reality is we got to deal with this doctrine because it's all over Scripture. Like everyone wants to think about, many people just think, well, it's all we relegated to some of Paul's writings in Ephesians, which we'll deal with later, or... Um, Romans chapter 8 and 9, but the reality is it's actually very much embedded in the very, the very scenes of Scripture. It's, as I'll say later, and I'll probably say this a couple of times, it's the, it's the muscle and the tissue of the gospel. 
and we have to deal with it, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Again, it's not like this is not something the church has wrestled with over and over and over again throughout the ages, from the apostles to the church fathers, from the patristics all the way through the medieval period, all the way up into the Reformation. It's like this particular issue continues to come back to the service because when we deal with this issue clearly, we get the gospel clearly. The first time we see it, at least one of the first major times we see it in church history, is in the Pelagian controversy. If you're not familiar with it, let me give you be a little history, uh, historian kind of nerd guy for a minute, okay? So Pelagius was this very popular, very provocative preacher in his day. And he had begun to articulate an understanding of the Christian faith that was quite departed from what the church fathers had been teaching and preaching and what the apostles obtained, and frankly, could not even be squared with the New Testament, really at all. And uh, the, the tenets of this Pelagian heresy was that it basically it denied original sin. So in other words, you and I are born blank slates, and so we have this infinite responsibility and ability to be able to just kind of choose our path, and as long as you choose correctly, you, uh, you win, right? It's kind of like some kind of um, Price is Right game or something. Um, but that's kind of what he, and he also denied, furthermore, that divine grace was even necessary for our salvation. And so you can imagine how this appeared to many of the other bishops around and all the different church fathers around during, during his day. And then you have then the chief architect of what we call modern Christian or we call Augustinianism, which was Augustine himself, who was the chief uh, protagonist against this very provocative and very popular preacher, as I've already mentioned. He had quite a following. And it was Augustine who was probably one of the first church fathers, church, churchmen, to actually articulate a, a fully orbed understanding of what the Bible teaches about why some were saved and why some were not saved. He dealt with the hard texts of Scripture like election and predestination, not because he was bookish, not because he was those theology nerds, but because it was vital to the life of the Christian to understand by what way we, you and I are saved. And so it was Augustine who was the one, the chief uh, leader to kind of put the Pelagian heresy to rest. It was ultimately condemned by the church. But you would think, okay, well, great, we have it in our history, but just like everything else, things always rise back up to the surface over time. And so over the next couple of centuries, um, the, this, this heresy begins to poke, it, poke out its uh, little head again every so often. And um, it reemerged in the medieval period in a kind of what we call semi-Pelagian. So it wasn't exactly full-on Pelagius, but it was a little bit Pelagian. It was really what it was all about. Let me, get, let me show what I mean by that. Basically, the Catholic Church had kind of embraced uh, a kind of form of works righteousness. They would say, and most would even say today, that you are saved by Christ. It was Christ's blood and his atoning work for you. They would, most would say that. The problem is, is they would say, well, that was what you needed initially, but what you needed to continue in the faith, this is why we had semi Pelagian, was that you needed to continue in certain things like mass, confession, um, paying and buying indulgences and, and, and buying your friends out of purgatory. All these things were kind of leveled on to the, the parishioners because one, they didn't have the Bible in their own language and therefore they couldn't read the Bible on their own. So they were just kind of held captive by whatever the local parish priest told them to do. 
And so it was the reformers who started seeing these abuses of sound doctrine and, frankly, a denial of what church had already condemned, that the reformers come in and they're, they're not, for the first time, discovering what you and I would know as, as this system of Calvinism. They're actually just recovering Augustinianism. They're just recovering what Augustine had already done before them. If you read Calvin's Institutes, and I, if you haven't, I understand why you might not want to, because it's a quite heavy book, but, but the reality is if you read through it, you find that, he's, that the entire first third of the book is not even about his own system of doctrine. It's about recovering what Augustine already fought for. So when we get into this idea of the doctrine of election, it's, it's not that just for nerdish, bookish types, maybe like myself, who are here just trying to convince you of some system of doctrine. It's about contending for the very substance of what the gospel is and who's responsible and who's the one who gives you the fruit of faith, who's the one who brings you to salvation. Is it you or is it God? It's always the question. Is it you or is it God? Now, if you want to debate the particulars, that's fine. And we can have those kinds of discussions, that's, that's for sure. But the reformers were particularly interested in recovering God-centered Christian life, a God-centered understanding of the scriptures, a God-centered understanding of salvation, a God-centered understanding of the, of the local, of the church. This was what they were chiefly concerned about. They were not concerned about uh, some reformer in, some French reformer named John Calvin's system called Calvinism. I don't care about that term. I honestly never have cared about the term. I care what the scriptures would say. And they were there to um, recover, as you were, these, what, we, what we know as the solace, which is essentially is Augustinianism. That God alone is glorious. That God alone is gracious. That God alone justifies by faith. That God alone saves through his son, Jesus Christ alone. And that God alone reveals himself through the scriptures alone. That's what the, so when you think about, say, for instance, and you get all, we get all wound up about this idea of predestination, election, and, and, and Calvinism, it's, we need to recognize that, that it wasn't taught by one person. That this was a whole movement, a whole upheaval to correct what had went drastically wrong in the, in the universal church during this day. And frankly, it's still relevant to, it, to uh, us today. Very much relevant to us today. And hopefully we'll see some of that here by the time this is over with. They wanted to restore the Bible to its simple integrity. See, the Bible had gotten to the place where it was out of reach, now a step with the normal person who was in the pews. They wanted to make the Bible, the reformers said, accessible. And did you could understand it simply? And really, if you want to understand the Bible simply, it is that... God has a law, we failed that law, but God's got a gospel, and he overcomes our failure. Bible 101. God has a law, we fail in the law, but God's got a gospel, and he overcomes our failure. That's the central conflict that has followed the church throughout church history. And so when we come on these difficult texts when Jesus says, you don't know me, you don't believe in me because you're not among my sheep, well, we, we have the hard task of dealing with doctrines like election because the Bible itself makes it plain. 
And it's call, our call to always preserve it, to contend for it, to fight for the integrity of the scriptures, to rightly understand what the gospel is. I always try to give you a sermon summary. Well, here's ours this morning. Because we, a fallen people in misery, because we are fallen, our sin and misery, we, our hearts cannot conceive nor receive Jesus without the sovereign work of God to elect us into salvation. Blunt, direct statement, but beautiful when we wrestle with the implications of it. I'll say it again. Because of our fallen, and, fallen state and sin and misery, our hearts cannot conceive nor receive Jesus without the sovereign work of God of electing men and women to salvation. Again, it's not an easy doctrine. I don't pretend for it to be an easy doctrine. Even as someone who's been in ministry for a long time, I don't ever tell people, like, I don't know, I mean, like, this is not, I'm human. I would not have written this up this way. But that doesn't, doesn't take away from the fact that it's still plain in Scripture. And I hope we can see some of that plainness this morning. Three points we're going to have from the text this morning. One, we need to examine the blindness that necessitates election. The hardness that's really in our own hearts that actually tells us that this is why election matters. Second thing we're going to see is the brilliance of God's work of election. Because it's brilliant. It's beautiful. And when we behold what it actually is, it's transformative. And then the last we're going to see is the benefits of God's election. Like, what benefits do you and I have because of God's work of election for us today? And we see this, and Jesus warms our hearts to these things if we will allow them to be warmed. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning, first point is blind, the blindness which necessitates election. We're going to see this in verses 22 through 20, uh, 25. Um, you find Jesus here in the text. We've already read it. It's during the time of the Feast of Dedication. You and I know it better as the season of Hanukkah, the season of lights, right? The Festival of Lights. Uh, if you're not familiar with what that is, that's the great Maccabean revolts where they revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes, who had taken over Jerusalem, had, was trying to rid Jerusalem of all of its religious uh, commitments. And he, the way he did that was to take over the temple and then defile the temple with false worship and false um, uh, sacrifices and all these kinds of things. And so this little band of Maccabeans rises up, they pray to God, and it was a long campaign, it was a horrible campaign for that matter, weren't sure they were going to get through it, but they eventually win the day, recover the temple, and they reestablish it. And so this, this feast of dedication is during what we typically know as Christians, Christmas, right around Christmas, and uh, they celebrate that recovery every year. And Jews do it to this very day. So it was at this point in Jesus' life, in, in life of history, it's a fairly new, it wasn't one of the longer historical feasts of the Jewish faith, okay? But this is what's going on. And so Jesus and his band of jolly followers are walking through the Solomon's Colonnade, and um, they're then pressed in on, it says here, by these Jews. They press in on Jesus and his band. In other words, they're not really interested in being sympathetic to Jesus' uh, teaching. They're not there to try to have a, a nice little banter about theology. They're actually trying to impose 
um, their force, impose a kind of demanding kind of force upon Jesus. And they're telling Jesus, you need to explain yourself. In fact, they say here, we need you to be plain, Jesus. When, how long you will keep us in suspense, right? This is who they are. Of course, then Jesus' response is what? I have been telling you. Where have you been? I've had wedding feasts. I have been in the temple. I have had teaching symposiums out here, in the, on the, out here on the west side of the temple. I have done everything I possibly can to tell you who I am. Now, to be clear, Jesus had not yet said publicly outside to the Samaritan woman and to his disciples that he was the Messiah. Okay? And there's a lot of reasons we can deduce from that, but the reality is he had not specifically said that at this particular point. So maybe to their credit, that's what they're looking for. But again, we must ask ourselves, but has he not really revealed who he is? The very man who has stood before them saying, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am... Before Abraham was, what? I am. All of those engagements were just laced with biblical and redemptive imagery that goes right back into the, the very, very core of what it meant to be Jews, to be Israelites. He was making it very clear who he was. All of the, as we said many times, and we will continue to say this in our time in John, all of the Old Testament is pointing toward Jesus. We don't have to read, we do read front to back, if you will, as, as, as Christian Christians, but the reality is the Bible, the Old Testament alone points to Jesus. You don't have to, you, you can look at the Old Testament and then someone who's just intuitive says, wait a minute, there's someone coming and he is going to do what we can't do for ourselves, but this is not what the Jews were looking for. They were looking for a great king, a great warrior who was going to go back and right the wrongs, and they were going to reestablish Jew, uh, 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 Jerusalem and so on and so forth. So he didn't need to say he was the Messiah to say he was the Messiah. He had already said it. Now the question here is then, and, and, you know, and it, it makes you ask the question, like, why... Do these guys not get it? Why did these uneducated fishermen that Jesus had called, remember? Called to himself, how did they get it? And these guys who are steeped in Judaism, steeped in religious training, how did they not see it? Well, I think that's exactly why election matters. Election shows us, if you will, it's, it's proven by our depravity. It's proven by our rebellion. That at the end of the day, the reason why Jesus is about to lower the, you know, drop the mic here in a minute, when he responds more fully to them, is because at the very heart of the engagement is this drastic, radical unawareness of these Jewish leaders, of their depravity, of their hardness of heart, of their um, blindness. Again, what Ben dealt with a couple weeks ago. Completely unaware of these realities. So, so the doctrine of election helps us, if you will, see why God's work of election matters. 
because it confronts the very nature of who we are. It confronts that, ne- that hardness, that, that, that um, unwillingness, that unwilling condition that exists in every one of our hearts. You can be steeped in the church. You can, you can be baptized as a, as a believer. I hope that's not the case, but you can be. You can be well-versed in the scriptures and in well-versed in sound doctrine, but miss Jesus entirely, to miss the entire point of it. I have, uh, I don't know if it's original with him or if it's something he read, but I remember him saying this uh, several years ago on, on a podcast I listened to, His name, a pastor named Joe Thorne. I love this. This is a powerful statement, and it hits to the very heart of what's going on here in these first few verses. We are unable to sing the melody of grace until we have heard the dirge of the law. Isn't that powerful? We are unable to sing the melody of grace until we have heard the dirge of the law. Because what does the law do? It reveals our helpless state. So for all of this religious work and all of this religious identity that the Jewish leaders had in their day, they had forgot the very thing that they said that they believed most in, the law itself. You can't hear the melody of grace. You can't sing the melody of grace until you have heard the dirge of the law. Very powerful things. And then Jesus finally drops the mic. The real issue behind the issue. Verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. That's our second point. The brilliance of election that Jesus is bringing to the table. He is making it plain. You are not mine. There are some that are mine, but you are not them. You are not of my flock. You are not of my people. If they wanted Jesus to be plain, they just got their wish. You're not mine. You're not mine. You're not my people. And this is exactly what John has been, in in this gospel, has been building out the entire time. John chapter 1, from the very beginning, the very pre, the introduction, the prelude of the entire gospel, verses 11 through uh, 13, he came to his own, meaning the historic people of Israel. His own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And here's the... Here's the, here's the lichpin right here in verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Guys, that's election right there. To be born of God. To say plainly the reason why these people did not receive Jesus because they're not born of God. They have not had the work of Christ and the regenerating power of the Spirit in their life to help them see what they do not see about themselves and, of course, about their God. 
There's something brilliant about what's happening here in this text. It's something beautiful. It's by the will of God that we are made sons and daughters of God. Their lack of belief is is connected to not knowing and receiving Jesus. And they're not knowing Jesus and receiving Jesus is because they are not his. They're not his flock. I know that's a hard pill to swallow. Again, I would not have written it up this way because I am a frail human sinner just like the rest of us in this room. But it is something that Jesus is making very, very clear. Whatever we want to make of the doctrine of election, as I've already said, we have to be honest about the fact that at least John here is plainly teaching it through the words of Jesus. But we also have the other places that we mentioned earlier, the, 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 the places that most people debate about all the time. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 through roughly 10. Let me read it for you real quick. Let me see. In love he predestined us, For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, there's a lot there that we can unpack, but this is just, let's just simply state what is being said here. We are predestined to adoption as sons and daughters. It's just that simple. If you are a son and daughter of the king, if you are of Christ here this morning, it was because of the actions of your father in heaven with the covenant he made with his son through the agency of the Holy Spirit to make you one of his. It cannot be any clearer than that. And this was done according to what? Your will? That's not what Paul says. According to God's will. And God's will was that he would provide a son, the blood of his son, to provide the payment necessary so that you and I could be adopted in. And through that payment, we now find forgiveness of our sins and the lavishness of God's grace. You can't sing the melody of grace until you have sung the dirge of the law. And if you don't understand the the realities of our brokenness before God, our sinfulness before God, you're never going to get the weight and the beauty and the brilliance of his work of salvation. You're just not going to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. So then, you have to know this doesn't sit well with his hearers, right? I mean, frankly, let's just be honest sometimes doesn't sit well with us. Can we be that honest right now? Can we be that in tune with our own sinful rebellion for a moment and just say, "Ah, this is a bit frustrating. But it's not. It's not frustrating that you don't have to depend on your genealogy to get you into heaven. 
praise be to God. That you don't have to depend on your will of the flesh to get you into heaven. Praise be to God. That you don't have to solely depend on your own decisions or on your own ability, your own will. Praise be to God. But you can rest solely in the accomplishments of the Son that, was, that he was sent from God to accomplish the divine will of the Father. Amen and amen. Friends, look. Where the first point was about the election confronts our depravity, confronts our sin, confronts our rebellion. Please understand, for us here this morning who know Christ and we are been made new in him, please recognize the election guarantees and finalizes everything that God has promised to you. When we are so caught up in the coldness of this doctrine, we'll never be able to receive the warmth that it actually provides. Because, I mean, if we stance, leave it right here, it kind of feels cold. You're it, you're not it. That's what it feels like. And that's not what's happening here at all. But that is what it, that's what it feels like. And so Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't leave us just in this cold, dark library of theology. He begins then to identify and outline the benefits, this third point of the election for those who truly are his. Because again, if left to its own right, it certainly at least appears and feels cold. So then Christ here in verses 27 through 30 paints a warm picture. The picture of the Spirit applied benefits of our election. If you pay close enough attention to what's happening here in this text, you don't see this as just the Son's work. You see the Father, you see the Son, and you see the Holy Spirit all working together to accomplish everything that you and I enjoy in Christ. And that's what Jesus is going to do. He says, look, just, just so you know, you, you want to know if you're one of mine? Well, here's what mine is. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. He instantly warms it up for us. Throws it into the microwave in case it feels a little chilly. This is, who he, this is what he does. It's wonderful. He says the very first thought was, My mind hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. To hear Jesus is that spirit-wrought work inside of us to delight in God's work. To delight in God's revelation of himself through the scriptures. To read the Bible without the Spirit's help is a drudgery. Because all it can do is condemn. 
But when you read it with the warmth of the Spirit inside of us to hear Jesus, it allows us to do what the psalmist in 119, Psalm 119 does. He just goes on for, I don't I can't remember how many verses, is 150 verses? 150 verses of how wonderful the law is. Now you ask the average Jew during David's day, you find out they would have said, yeah, the law is wonderful, but it feels a bit like a burden, like a, something tied around my neck, because it is. But when we are made alive in Christ, we can actually hear God, we can hear Jesus, we can hear his word with delight, and it no longer feels that way. It no longer is that way because we can now delight in the wonderful truths of God's word. And Jesus says, I know them. I know them. It's not that you and I just get to know Jesus, which is a wonderful truth in and of itself, but the fact that that, that Jesus knows you. That it says later on in the passage there um, uh, that he says the Father has given them to me. That implies, at least initially, that God has specifically said, these are mine, son, go get them. So that means he can identify whose are his and he knows them, he knows their frame. He knows everything that is a struggle to us. He knows us. Beautiful, wonderful stuff. And he knows us, ready? Better than we know ourselves. He knows us the deepest parts of ourselves. Salvation, friends, is not this general ambitious campaign that God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit came up with one day and said, you know what we ought to do? <laughs> uh, we saw what Adam and Eve did, so we got to come up with this plan. And, and if we offer this plan, maybe a few people will, ex will accept it. That's called general atonement. Can you read general atonement into this passage? You cannot. You just can't. You cannot do it. I can't do it. I tried. I have, but I can't do it. No. God's campaign of salvation is particular. It is laser-pointed. Jesus knows you. And that's wonderful for you and I know on a lot of other levels too, right? Because there's not a place in your life that you can say that you stand completely isolated, not only from one another, but from God, because this God knows you. He knew your steps, and his divine son walked in your, his son walked into your, in your steps. This is beautiful. And he says, and my sheep, mine, follow me. This is, this is the benefits that happen for us. These are spirit-raw benefits, as I've already mentioned, right? And what, what he means to follow him means that, do you know how frustrated, by a show of hands, how many of you guys have been frustrated to follow Jesus? Okay. Some of you didn't raise your hands. Try again. All right. So seriously, like be frustrated, right? Because it is a frustrating reality to follow Jesus. I am faced with the worst parts of myself every day of my life. And so the work of sanctification is an absolutely frustrating and disheartening and discouraging reality if it's left up to me. But that's not what Jesus says. My people hear my voice. I know them. And guess what? They follow me. And that word follow in the Greek is very, very important. It's an indicative. 
It means it's guaranteed. That on your worst day, God is still producing fruit in you. Through the work of his spirit. And that you will follow him and you will be with him because you are his. And that will, and as you continue growing fruit, one day that fruit, regardless if you ever reach the finish line or not, is going to be met with the face and the wonderful reception of Jesus in his spirit. And then he goes on and says, and I give them eternal life. It's eternal life. Like, there's nothing in your life, nothing in my life that I can turn to and have enough confidence in to say, if I do this, if I participate in that, if I'm part of whatever group or circle of people or, or movement or whatever it may be that can give me the assurance of eternal life. No, Jesus says, I assure you, they will have eternal life. They will have it. And it's not just eternal life as if he's just thinking future. It's eternal life, if you look at it again, if you look at this in the Greek, it's really fascinating. It's, it's this present active indicative formulation. Now, I know that sounds really weird and no one really thinks about that way, but what that means is it is eternal life that begins now. And it's a reality that continues with us until Jesus returns. That he gives you eternal life right now. Someone may take your body. You may get slain, you may go serve in another country and you lose your life for the cause of Christ. Some disease may ravage your body. Some earthly circumstance may cause you great pain and difficulty, but that no wise ever changes the outcome for you. It doesn't for me. Because he then goes on to support this with, they will not perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand that's indicating that that's a present reality you can't perish that doesn't mean you won't die it doesn't mean that you're physically won't lose your the battle to to the death of body because the body is going it's temporary it's temporary it doesn't mean that but what it does mean is that your ultimately your soul is with christ and one day you will be raised again with Christ, with new and perfected bodies, in the kingdom of God, forever and ever and ever. You will not perish. And no scheme of man, no worldly ambition could ever, ever loosen Jesus' grip from your life. Ever. See, salvation is guaranteed by the full force of this triune God. That's why he goes in and he says, the Father and I are one. Like, this is not just something I came up with, gang, is what Jesus said. Like, me and the Father have been working this thing out for a long time. And the Spirit's there working out the plan of me and the Father and I covenanted together. We call it the Pactum Salutum, Salutus. The covenant of redemption that God made with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, long before one hair on your head was ever saved. Ever. It's guaranteed by the full force. Your salvation, your redemption, my redemption is guaranteed by the full force of the triune God. That the God himself is the one who 
gives us to the Son? That the Son gathers those who've been given to him as his sheep into his flock, into his sheepfold, and then the Spirit preserves and assures those sheep that they will always be his. Wonderful. So if election is, confronts our sin, if election guarantees and finalizes our ultimate, is the guarantee and finalization of our ultimate salvation, listen, don't bypass the fact that election provides you and I comfort and assurance here and now. So there's a message here, right, for, for all of us. I, I, I have to assume that most of you, I know most of you, and I, and I believe your confession is faith, it's true, but so there's a message for believers here. But there's also a message for unbelievers here, right? Because it's who he's talking to. And their response, and I'm not going to go into the whole text here because I want to save time, but the rest of the chapter is the Jews didn't like this message, and they start picking up stones, and Jesus is like, why are you picking up stones? And they're like, because you are saying you're God, and then Jesus is trying to reason with an unreasonable group of people. Okay, that's the Cliff Notes version of this text. And it really forces you and I to examine ourselves. Are we more like these believers than we want to admit? Where do we tend to want to throw stones at our confession? Where do we want to throw stones at this, this, this whole uh, uh, call of Christianity, this mission, this message, this truth of Christianity? Why are we not willing to reason with Christ? That's where this, this reveals something about who we actually are. Because at the end of the day, these, this text just shows us how stubborn we are. How stubborn you are. So if you're, you're not here this morning and you're not sure if you're part of Christ or maybe you've had some doubts or maybe you've just frankly been somewhat caustic as it relates to Christianity because every day new information is being spilt out to you that's trying to provoke you to say why you shouldn't be a Christian. Okay, that's like every day. There's being stones thrown at the Christian faith every day from every media outlet. And all these media outlets think that this whole idea of Christianity is just absolutely unreasonable. And it begs you and I to ask the question, then what gospel is reasonable? What good news actually will, will be reasonable to you? Friend, if you're here this morning, you have not known Christ. Or maybe you're doubting you know Christ. Here's my, here's my challenge to you is, would you just take the moment to recognize all the places in your soul where you've doubted the reasonableness of the gospel? Because that's what Jesus does. He goes back to them and he says, um, you say that I'm blaspheming. You say you are bla-, he says, you say I'm blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe in me, believe in the works that you may know and understand the Father who is in me and I am of the Father. In other words, he's still in their unbelieving state. Jesus is still compelling these people who he said clearly are not his. If you don't believe me, just believe the works. If you're not a believer here this morning, just examine the works. Examine the revelation of Scripture. Do it. 
Consider where you throw stones and poke holes at this gospel because you don't like this gospel because you don't want to truly believe that, you, that, that this is what is necessary for you to be right with God. And for the believer, two things come to mind. One is, we've already noted, embracing the comfort of this. The comfort where you and I who were once blind, you and I who were once deaf, you and I who were once absolutely resistant to the things of God, now hear the word of Christ, now known by Jesus, now follow Jesus, be comforted in that. On your worst day, would you turn back to the goodness of the gospel and the assurity you have in the finished accomplishments of the Son to know that right then and there, no matter how terrible your day has been, your, or your week has been, your month has been, or maybe even a decade. Okay, I'm, I'm talking to those folks here too. The good news is still good news. The good news is still good news. But let's also remind ourselves of one last thing and then we'll prepare for the table. See, someone will take this doctrine of election and they'll just, again, they get kind of wrapped up in the coldness of it and they'll say, and they'll reason this, and you, you've probably heard this said before, well, if this is the truth, then, then why even share the gospel with anyone if we don't really know who's going to be Christ? And to that, I just want to say, Bleh, that's just wrong. Because if, it's, if, it, if that's true, then why does Jesus in this very text commend these unbelievers who are not part of his flock to reason with him? Because even then, he freely offers the gospel to all people. And when we freely offer the gospel to all people, the Spirit goes to work in the Word, through the Word, to the people, and changes hearts. So friends, no matter how stiff-necked the world is, no matter how stiff-necked that relative is in your life that continues to stiff-arm you and mock you for your faith, freely offer the gospel to him. And you do it with assurance. You know why? Because you're not the one who saves. Jesus is. Isn't that amazing? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. God, be glorified this morning as we come to this table and we enjoy this meal together as your people. And God, would you help us now to rest deeply, delight deeply in the accomplishments that you have, that you have done through the, their Son and through the Spirit so that we might be saved. And that would make this meal that much more enjoyable. We love you. It's in Christ's name.